squeak You live in a money pit Money pit If your basement needs a pump Or your place looks like a dump You live in a money pit Money pit Pick up the telephone Fix up your home sweet home By calling 888 Money Pit to coast and floorboards to shingles. This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Hope you guys are enjoying a beautiful January day in your part of the country. Hope you're nice and toasty and warm if you're inside. If you're fixing up your inside space because you are spending a lot more time in it with the chilly weather, we would love to help you do just that. Or if you're planning an escape for the spring, maybe you want to build that beautiful outdoor living space, spruce up the deck, build a patio, whatever's on your to-do list, slide it right over to ours by reaching out to us with those questions. The number here is one money pit You can also post your questions to our social media pages. Those links are all on moneypit.com. Or you can call us at one eight 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 money pit Coming up on today's show, if you thought about adding solar panel to your home to reduce energy costs, did you know that not all panels deliver the same amount of electricity? It's important to understand this because you may need more or less depending on what the panel is capable of doing. We're going to top line those details in just a bit. And if you like homes that feel bigger than they are, there's a new trend in what's known as broken or semi-open floor plans, and that's beginning to catch on. We're going to share all those details on this new trend coming up. And with half a winter behind us, it's time to think about making sure your outdoor trees will bloom this spring. We're going to share some tips on keeping the trees alive through the remaining chilly months. But first, you need help with a renovation, a repair, a decorating project, whatever it is that you are working on. We're here to help you create your best home ever. So give us a call and let us know what you are working on. That number again is 888-MONEYPIT. That's 888-666-3974. Or post those questions to moneypit.com. Let's get to it. Leslie, who's first? Pat in South Dakota, you've got the Money Pit. What can we do for you today? Yeah, I have a question about some flooring. Um, our flooring is about 25 years old. We have carpet and um, vinyl laminate on about 800 square feet. And I know the subfloor is good, but I want to pull up the old carpets and lay some flooring down. And I saw some um, vinyl, some of the new vinyl plank stuff. Now, I've laid a um, laminate floor before that had the backing attached, and that wasn't too bad. And I was just curious, um, the main floor, I want to do it all together because it all runs together, but it's got a bathroom, um, just a quarter bath, and a kitchen, and a dining room, and a family room, and a landing, and a hall. So there's lots of corners and stuff like that. And I'm just curious um, what your opinion is on that new vinyl plank flooring, if it's Easier to install, more durable. Yeah, I think you're you're talking about the uh, engineered vinyl plank. I think the EVP. It's like the rubberized vinyl. Um, it looks like a plank. Some of them glue together with like an overlap tab that has an adhesive already on it. Some of them you actually put an adhesive down, almost like a mastic, and then apply it like a tile. So it depends on which kind you're looking at because one of them is much thicker than the other and they both then have a different prep and a different adhesion process. So I think you really need to look into which that is. Mm-hmm. Now, the one I saw at the home show here locally was it was kind of it was a vinyl. You could bend it. And it looked like a wood grain, but it was um, kind of a quick-together installation, but it wasn't like the the solid, the firm, and, you know, laminate flooring that clicks together. 
it wasn't soft, you know, you couldn't, can't bend that, but this vinyl stuff you could bend and it looked pretty nice. Yeah, Pat, you're talking about a product called EVP or engineered vinyl plank. That's another type of vinyl flooring, much newer uh, to the market. Um, but from what I've seen of it, it's 100% waterproof. It does click together much like uh, other types of laminate floor would. And the finish on it is super durable. Lumber Liquidators makes one that has a 30-year finish on it, and uh, it looks just like wood. So that is definitely another option for you. Now, do you, um, you know, the, the stuff I've laid before already has the backing attached. The click-together laminate, that had a backing attached. Now, for something like this, do you just lay it right over the subfloor and the um, linoleum in the case as long as it's even and good? Yeah. In fact, this is a floating floor, much like a regular laminate floor would be. So it's not adhered to the old floor. It lays on top of it. So as you say, as long as the floor is flat with no big you know, dips or, or bumps or humps in it, you know, then it just is going to lock together and lay right there, and you're going to trim it along the edge against the baseboard molding. Okay. You're welcome. Good luck with that project. We've got Philip in Massachusetts on the line who's dealing with a roofing issue. So tell us what's going on at your place. I was going to replace the roof on the backside of the house. It's a Cape Cod. I was wondering about what type of roof would be the best for this application and if I should use ice guard. I've had a problem with backup under the shingles in the frozen 30-degree weather. Yeah, definitely in the Massachusetts area, you're going to want to have ice and water shield because you get a lot of snow that kind of cake up on the gutter. It forms to ice. Then as the snow melts higher up on the roof, it runs down, hits that sort of blockage and backs up into the house. So, well, what you're going to want to do is take existing layers of shingles off because you can't put ice and water shield on top of an old roof. So you go right down to the roof sheathing. And then you're going to use ice and water shield. The biggest name in that is Grace, G-R-A-C-E. Grace Ice and Water Shield is a good product. It's about three feet wide, and it goes along that bottom lip, uh, that bottom edge of the roof right above the gutter. You don't have to go beyond that because the ice dams don't form up higher on the roof. You just put it along the bottom edge, front and back. In terms of the shingle quality, um, you have a lot of choices in shingles today. The first one's going to be cosmetic, whether you want sort of a standard shingle or you want one that emulates wood. So dimensional shingles are the ones that can look like uh, like a wood shake roof, even though they're made out of asphalt. And generally speaking, you're going to probably want something that's in the basic you know, 20, 25-year range. I would not get um, bamboozled by manufacturers that have 50-year warranties because when it comes to roofing shingle warranties, it only covers the roofing shingle. It doesn't cover the labor, and it only covers it um, on a prorated basis. So if you're, let's just say uh, you were dutiful enough to keep all your paperwork and your 50-year warrantied shingles only last 25, and you had all that documentation, they go, yep, it definitely failed. Here's half the cost of new shingles. You're on your own for the rest. And uh, that's the way that works. So I think, you know, 20, 25 year uh, average life for a roof shingle is reasonable. And your only decision is whether or not you want uh, one that's dimensional, that has that sort of pattern to it, or just sort of a plain shingle. Heading to Florida where Carolyn's on the line, has some rusty doors that need painting. How can we help you? I'm needing to repaint or fix my garage doors. They're metal. And I don't know what I have to do. They do have some rust on them. And so I guess I'm going to have to sand them down and treat them. But I just don't really know what to use on them. So that's a pretty straightforward project. So the first thing you need to do is you need to sand off those rust spots because you don't want to paint over the rust. So you want to sand them off. You use a very fine grit sandpaper for that. 
Um, probably something that's around uh, 200, 300 grit, like an emery paper, will work well for that. Uh, and then next, you do need to prime them. I would recommend Rust-Oleum, and uh, you can buy that, uh, you know, by the quart, by the gallon. You don't want to prime that whole door. And by the way, aside from sanding that rust spots, you want to lightly sand the whole door to make sure it's clean, because again, you don't want to have anything in between that and the primer. Then you can use a Rust-Oleum primer on the entire door. Uh, and then on top of that, you're going to use, I would just stay with the Rust-Oleum line and use a top coat of color from there. It's a little tricky when you're dealing with garage doors. You have to sort of have them propped open a little bit because otherwise the door, when it closes, it rubs against the weather stripping. And, and of course, that mars up the paint finish. So you're going to have to sort of pick a day uh, when it's warm enough where you can have that garage door open and let it dry and uh, just don't put it down all the way. If you leave it a, if you leave it uh, sort of suspended in the air about maybe halfway down, you'll probably be okay. I would work one side at a time. It's going to be a bit of a time-consuming project, but it's pretty straightforward, and it's not that difficult. All right, now we've got Eric in Michigan on the line who's got a question uh, during a construction project here about an eaves trough. The question is eaves troughs, yes or no, when you're building... Does it make a difference if it's on a concrete slab or if you have a basement? Just your thoughts whether to uh, install these troughs or not. Yeah, Tom, I, I mean, I've never heard this term before. What What is an eaves trough? Do we have those here? <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, you say gutter, but in Michigan they say eaves trough. Ah, <laughs> the famous tomato, tomato, gutter, tomato, yeah, eaves exa- trough. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Your question is, do I need gutters? And yes, you do. It doesn't matter if you're on a concrete slab or if you have a basement because the gutters are going to manage the water to the foundation perimeter, which is important in both cases. Now, if you let, if you let a lot of water run off your roof, even if you're on a slab, you're going to find that as the soil gets, gets very wet around the foundation, you'll have more settlement and get some cracking. Uh, and also, in some cases, if there's a heavy rainfall, you get so much water that because concrete is so hydroscopic, it absorbs water like crazy. It can actually pull that water up into the living space of your house. Now you've got mold issues and everything else. So, yes, you do need gutters. And if you have basements, well, if you don't have gutters, you're just waiting for a flood to happen. You're ready for it because it's going to happen. So, yes, put gutters on the house, put downspouts on the house. Make sure they are extended at least. This is new construction, so I would say at least four or five feet away. And when they do the final grade, do a little bit higher of a grade than they are required to by code because it settles, and it settles quickly. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen the minimum grade just turn flat, like within six months to a year. Now you got no drainage at all, and the water's just sitting there. So that water management is really, really important, Eric, and uh, that's why I think you definitely should have eaves troughs around the around the roof edge of your house. Hmm, that's fancy. I'm going to start using that every day in my life. Oh, that eaves trough is overflowing. Use that in a sentence in your general conversation. Hey, kids, keep those tennis balls out of the eaves trough. There you go. <laughs> Well, if you're thinking about adding a solar energy system to your home so that you can reduce or eliminate your electricity bill, one of the decisions that you're going to need to make is which type of solar panel you're installing. Because, you know, there's actually a lot of options out there, and I think people don't realize that. Yeah, now, panels are going to vary by the number of cells, which would typically be 60 or 72. And the difference really comes down to the actual physical dimensions, since panels that hold more cells are physically larger and they have to be fitted properly 
on your existing roof space. Yeah, and you also want to consider cost per watt. Now, full-sized panels typically deliver anywhere between 275 watts to 400 watts of output, but higher output doesn't always mean a better deal. Yeah, and next you're going to want to consider the reputation of the panel manufacturer. Now, that's important because these panels... They're going to be with you for a while. They're designed to last 25 years or more, and you're going to want to be confident that the manufacturer is going to be there the whole time. Yeah, and along those same lines, you want to consider the warranty. Now, most are 25 years, but some can be 30 years, and one manufacturer even has a third-party company that backs the warranty the entire time, so that in the unlikely event that something happens to the manufacturer, that third-party company would be the one to handle those issues. And lastly, and this is really important, you want to consider the panel efficiency, which basically tells you how good the panel is at converting sunlight into that important usable energy. It's particularly important if you have limited space for your panels on your roof, because high-efficiency panels are more expensive, but they deliver more power output per square foot of that precious available space, which, again, is particularly helpful when you have a really tight roof space situation because you need to not only have the space, but the roof has to face the right direction. So that efficiency number is really critical. So you have to kind of balance that against the cost of the panel. Heading out to Fayetteville, Pennsylvania, where Deb's on the line. So I've heard about ring around the collar. I've heard about ring around the tub, but you've got a ring around the sink. What's going on? My problem is that I have a bathroom counter combination sink that's beautiful. It's creamy yellow. I love it. Nothing's wrong with it except right around the drain is this ugly black that won't come off. And my husband says we might have to just replace the whole thing. I said it's ridiculous. Everything's perfect except that spot. There's got to be something to you. He mentioned something like a lime away. We haven't tried anything yet. But it's like I said, just a ring around the drain part. Everything else in the sink is perfect. I hate to get rid of the whole thing for that. There's got to be something. Even if we have to sand it or something, maybe there's a new product to get rid of that black. But it's really a shame because everything else is perfect. Yeah, Deborah, I know what you're talking about. And what happens is that that is the area of the sink with a composite sink, which is pretty sure what, you, what you're referring to, uh, where it really wears the finish on the sink wears, and then over the years, you get just sort of the dirt and the grime that embeds itself into that space. Sometimes you get a reaction between uh, the metal drain that's there and the sink itself. Uh, it's funny, you mentioned sanding. I think if, if it's you've done all this sort of uh, over-the-counter products attempts, I mean, I, I would try CLR maybe just, just to make sure you check that off the list. That's the calcium lime rust remover. But uh, I would try that. I would also try an oxygenated bleach. But if those two things don't work, you could consider disconnecting the drain, basically pulling that all out, and then seeing if you could abrade some of that dark area away with uh, some steel wool. I don't think sandpaper will work, but it would allow you to have a better shot at it. And then when you put it back together, make sure you use a new uh, drain connection from the top side because you will stop getting any additional deterioration. And you might even consider one that's slightly wider. If it has slightly wider lip on that metal drain, uh, that would actually cover the old black, which is probably forming between uh, the drain itself uh, and the sink. So there's a couple of ideas for you. Hopefully uh, one of those will uh, will straighten this problem out without you having to replace the entire thing. Mike in Arizona's on the line. You've got a question about siding. What's going on? My house currently has western red cedar as siding, but it's like 20 years old and really in bad shape. And I'm wondering 
because of my local place, if I can go with a pine tongue and groove siding versus a western red cedar tongue and groove siding, if it would be appropriate for this area. So, Mike, you want to replace the western red cedar with pine, but you're going to basically have the same situation. The fact that you're replacing wood with wood, that pine in 20 years is going to look just as bad, if not worse, because, uh, by the way, pine is not as insect-resistant and not as decay-resistant as cedar is. So if you really want wood siding and the existing wood siding is just deteriorated, I would simply replace it with more western red cedar. Now, that said, if you want to get away from wood siding, I would take a serious look at hardy plank siding or hardy shingle siding. Uh, The hardy sidings are really well made, and they're basically a cement siding, and they are pre-painted at the factory. I, for example, have wood shingles on my house, and I have hardy shingles on my garage, and from the street, they look identical, but I can tell you that I'll be doing a lot more painting of the house than I will of the garage because those shingles just don't wear out. How long have I had my hardy shingles? Ten years now? Yeah. All I do is occasionally, like, power wash a little area. The house right. looks pristine. All I had to do was uh, spray a little mildecide on it to get rid of some of the moss that likes to grow on it. But other than that, it looks perfect. It has shown nowhere whatsoever. It's just amazing stuff. No, and it looks like the real deal. Like, it, it looks does. like real shingles. So yeah. there's no, you know, there's no downside. Yeah, so you're not picking up any benefit by replacing uh, cedar siding with pine siding. But if you want to pick up a benefit, I would switch out, maybe go with a hardy or if you really like the wood, then just go with the cedar again. Um, but this time, use a solid color stain on it. That's going to give it more protection. You'll have to do that probably about every five years to keep it from cracking and checking and wearing out again. Heading over to Illinois, where Lynn's on the line. Who's having a bit of trouble getting her mail these days. What's going on? I have a mailbox that's enclosed in a brick enclosure, an ornamental brick enclosure, and the mailbox has rusted, and the door eventually fell off, and I couldn't reattach it. So I'm just wondering, it's a pretty small mailbox inside that enclosure, so I can't slip another one in inside it, but I was just wondering if there's any suggestions of what I could do about that. Wow, yeah, that's definitely a hassle, and sure, that metal box that was surrounded by bricks is definitely going to have a life expectancy, which you're apparently uh, at the end of right now, Lynn. So, So let me make you a couple of suggestions. First of all, that mailbox had to have been installed into that brick with some sort of mechanical fastener. So the, the mason would have you know, made the brick surround it, but he also would have had to have attached it in some way. I suspect that if you look Perhaps you need a bright flashlight for this. If you look deep into that metal mailbox, you're probably going to see the heads of some bolts or nuts or screws that are sticking through the sides of that mailbox. I'm going to tell you how I would do it. You may not have the tools for this or the patience for it, but what I would do is I would cut the head of that screw off from the inside of the mailbox. I mean, this is something that I would do with a sawzall. You could probably also do it Um, Frankly, with just a hacksaw blade, if you're patient enough, you slide it flush with the metal mailbox and basically saw back and forth. It's a little rough to handle, so just use some tape on the raw part of the blade that you're holding on. And be careful not to slip because you could, like, you know, cut yourself doing this. But you're going to cut those screw heads off. That should loosen this box enough for you to get it out. And you may have to pry it a little bit. Eventually, try to get it out with as least damage as possible. But just yank it out of that hole. Now you've got this clean hole to work with. And at this point, I would just get online and start searching for mailbox upon mailbox upon mailbox. 
and see if I could find one that has a dimension that feels like it would work. You know, Amazon Prime is perfect for this if you have it because they usually have free returns and you could order three or four of them until you find one that fits and send the rest back. And I also might suggest that nowadays a lot of those mailboxes are made of a very sturdy plastic, which is simply not going to corrode like the metal one did. I bet when this was first installed, there was no such thing as a plastic mailbox uh, that was sturdy. These new mailboxes made out of a, of a really a sort of industrial strength plastic. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I've seen them and played with them, and they're pretty tough. I would suggest you slip one of those into that brick opening because uh, it'd certainly be worth the extra effort so that you don't have to disassemble uh, that brick portion of the mailbox holder, so to speak, uh, to get this project completed. Well, if you had the choice, guys, would you love to have an open floor plan? You know, a lot of people do. Most open floor plans consist of one large space or a great room, and that combines your kitchen, your dining, and your living area which can give you a very refreshing, open feeling. It's for some people. It's not for everybody. So you've got to decide how you can best live within the space. Now, another benefit of an open floor plan is that it maximizes space both visually and literally. So you're not likely to wind up with an unused formal dining room, for example, or or a living room that's only used when company's coming. That wide open line of sight also provides sort of a sense of continuity and it allows the furnishings and style of your home to shine. But Leslie, you always say that that figuring out how to place furniture is additionally a bit more complicated when you have sort of an open style like that, right? Oh, for sure, because you still want that furniture, even though the space itself is open, you want those furnishings to kind of create those rooms, you know what I'm saying? So it's like there's tables that go behind couches and there's different areas and different things to sort of say, I'm a living room, I'm the dining area, I'm the kitchen area, I'm the hangout zone. So you have to really think about that. And I think it's important when you're doing this to think about plug placement. You need something in the floor because that's where a lamp is going to be. So there's a lot more to think about. But interestingly, realtors are seeing that most first or second time home buyers really love this open concept living. I mean, even those who've been, you know, used to living with that traditional closed plan home, they're really looking for ways to remove walls, open things up. I'm kind of a fan of this, like, little bit of a mix of it. So maybe like your kitchen opens to the family room, but then there's still, you know, separation to a dining area. You know, I like that sort of mix of it all, if that's such a thing. Yeah, I think all in all, if an open floor plan is a look you enjoy, it's kind of a remodeling project that does result in a very desirable design that's no doubt going to add some value and some interest to your home when it comes time to sell. And you know what? If you sell your house and all your furniture is out, let the new buyer figure out how they're going to fit their stuff into that flow, right? Yeah. Let that person that does the virtual rendering that says like, your house could look like this. Let them come up with some ideas. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Rebecca in Tennessee is on the line with a question about a crack in a foundation. Tell us what's going on at your money pit. Oh, well, let's see. Where do I start? I have an external chimney. I believe they said it was limestone. There are cracks that are going from the bottom of it all the way to the top on the front. And if you're facing it on the right side as well, and on the inside around the mantle, I put it to you this way, there are paint chips that have shifted about an inch above from where they were originally on the wall, and there are cracks kind of coming from the vicinity of the chimney down to the windowsill. Mm, okay. I had someone take a look at it, and he said the foundation under the chimney 
was correct. And what it is, I've really been given two different opinions as to what I need to do to fix it. Okay, let, let me ask you a question, Rebecca. The, the person you had to look at it, was this a, a chimney contractor, a mason? It was a, uh, he's actually a roofer, an external specialist, but he also works on chimneys. Uh, he Okay, so it's a contractor. And who was the second opinion from? Another contractor? Yes, another contractor. Okay. And uh, one opinion is the chimney needs to be torn completely down. And the other one is it needs to be knocked down to the roof level and tied into the roof. Now, let me ask you a question here, Rebecca. What do both of these guys have in common? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. They both want your money. That's what they have yeah, in common. Okay. Yeah. So they have a conflict of interest. This is a, a significant project and a potentially serious one and one that may go deeper than what you're seeing. What you're telling me is concerning because of the number of cracks and the evidence of movement. So I'm going to tell you that what you should do is find a professional home inspector. You can find one that's certified by the American Society of Home Inspectors and have that inspector look at your chimney, either a home inspector or a structural engineer, but not a contractor. A home inspector does not do work on the house. They only inspect, so they don't have that conflict of interest. If you go to the website for the American Society of Home Inspectors, which is ASHI, A-S-H-I, dot org, or I think it's also homeinspector.org, you can enter in your zip code. You'll get a list of uh, certified inspectors in your area. You can call a few, chat with them about what's going on. They'll charge you a small fee, you know, maybe 100 or $200, I would guess, to do what's called a partial inspection, which is basically to come out and look at one item. But I really think you need a set of skilled eyes looking at that, where the guy's not trying to sell you a repair to tell you what exactly is going on and what has to happen before you start spending money with these uh, contractors. They, they may be completely right, but I'm uncomfortable whenever you have a contractor that says, you got a problem, lady, but I'm just the guy to fix it for you. It's just a big mm-hmm. conflict of interest, and you got to guard against it, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT. Susan in Texas is on the line with a water question. What's going on? My daughter has a country home she just purchased, and there's a 900-foot deep water well on it. And she wanted to know, does she need to use a water softener or a carbon filter for the drinking water? And also, how much electricity would that use, that water well? Well, the first thing she needs to do is to have a comprehensive water test done. Was that done? I believe so, because they had inspectors come out. But I don't remember what she said. Yeah, well, I wouldn't believe anything unless I had a result back from a, from a water testing laboratory. That's going to tell you what kind of treatment you need to do locally. So the first thing she needs to do is to get a water test done, a thorough water test done, that's going to check for uh, all sorts of contaminants and pesticides and that sort of thing. And then based on that, you can determine what you want to do to treat the water. But you just don't start treating it first. You start with the test, and the test is what determines what needs to be treated. Make sense? Yes, lots of sense, yes. Well, with about half of the winter behind us, it's a good time to think about making sure your outdoor trees are going to actually bloom this spring. There are some steps that you can do right now to make sure that those trees actually survive the remaining colder weather ahead and are good to go when it warms up. Yeah, first of all, it's important to know that trees aren't just hanging out when the weather's cold. They're actually working to conserve food and energy and protecting their growing parts underneath those layers known as buds, which are very, very vulnerable this time of year. 
Now, one thing you can do to help your trees is to keep them warm, so to speak, through the winter by making sure you add a thin layer of composted organic mulch to the tree's soil surface, which helps protect those roots from extreme temperatures. If you happen to get a warmer day, go ahead and add another layer of it midwinter just to make sure that they are totally covered. Yeah, and if the tree is on the younger side and it hasn't developed that corky bark, you want to wrap it, and you need to keep pets and animals away, too, during this very delicate time. Yeah, and lastly, you want to resist the urge to prune too many dead branches. Cuts need to be made selectively until the weather warms up. So if it's something that looks, you know, kind of dangerous, yeah, go ahead and trim that. But for the rest of it, just wait until the spring. Heading over to Baltimore, where Lydia's on the line with a question about insulation. Tell us what's going on at your money pit. Well, I would like to know, you know, what kind of insulation we should go for. Okay. So right now, do you know what kind of insulation you have in the attic? Uh, Most homes have fiberglass. Is that what you have? I don't know what's up there. Okay. Uh, Tell me how old your house is, Lydia. Any idea? About 25 years old. Okay. Well, most likely it has the original fiberglass insulation, and in a 25-year-old house, that's going to have settled down and be fairly compressed and uh, not doing a great job insulating your home, so that means you're probably spending more than you have to on heat. So here's what I would do. I would add 8 to 10 inches of unfaced fiberglass bats, so that's no paper face, no foil face, and you lay those perpendicular, so 90 degrees, to the uh, floor joists that are up there, and this will create a second layer of insulation. It will make a big impact in improving the energy efficiency of your home. Now, you will have to give away some storage space because you can't crush that insulation. Uh, it has to remain thick and fluffy to do its job. But I think if you put another layer of, say, 8 to 10-inch unfaced fiberglass bats up there, you will be far more comfortable in that home this winter. Liz writes in and she says, we want to add a deck or patio to our backyard. Which one is going to add more value to the home, a wood deck or a patio of pavers? Well, you know, frankly, the idea that you can create living space beyond the four walls of your house is a really popular home improvement project. And some reports say that installing deck will give you as much as a 75% return on investment when it comes time to sell. Uh, patios are not rated, Liz, but I would expect the results to be similar. It's more important to use the right application here because if your door at the back of your house, whether it's a slider or just a regular door, if it's up more than about eight inches or maybe it's like one step down, you definitely might want to think about a patio. If it's higher than that, use a deck. What you don't want to do is build a deck too low to the ground because it becomes kind of a rotty, nasty, sort of algae-covered mess at that point, and that's not going to add any value to your house. All right, good luck with those projects. It sounds fun. Well, if you've ever tried to furniture shop, you know it can be somewhat overwhelming. Many of the decisions you're faced with when considering a new sofa or an easy chair is the material. Now, leather is durable, but it's expensive. However, fabric might not stand up to your daily grind. And if you got pets, oh, man, that further complicates everything. Well, Leslie's got some tips to help us all sort it out in today's edition of Leslie's Last Word. Leslie, where do we begin? Yeah, 
say, you know, when you're choosing between leather and fabric, there's a lot of things that you need to consider. Now, most leather types, they're pretty easy to clean. A damp cloth is usually all that you need to wipe down the sofa. Leather is going to be very durable. It can outlive a fabric by many years if you take care of it properly. It's clean looking. It kind of has a sophisticated modern look. And I mean, it really can have a different look depending on the frame or shape of that piece of furniture as well. But some people find, and this includes me, that the leather furnishings, it's kind of cold to the touch. And when you sit on it in the warmer months or if it's humid, you kind of get stuck to it. So those aren't my favorite options when it comes to leather. Those, you know, those reasons there. Also, with leather, you're not going to get as many color options as you would with a fabric. I mean, obviously, one's a hide and one's a manufactured thing. Now, for fabrics, there's a lot of colors out there. There's a ton of patterns. It can feel warm and cozy. It can feel inviting. I'm not saying that leather doesn't also, but there's definitely two very different feels when it comes to these materials. Now, some fabric sofas are going to have a removable cover that allows them to be professionally cleaned. On the downside, though, fabrics can be very easily stained so they're not as durable as leather and then sometimes depending on the fabric that you pick or the pattern that you pick or the texture of it it can get more dated you know or feel more dated more quickly than a leather furnishing would. So there's a lot of stuff to consider. I mean, you really have to weigh your pros and cons to decide what's best for you. You know, I I got two boys. I feel like every time I pick something, it doesn't really matter what I pick. They manage to destroy everything. So I look for pieces of furniture that are cleanable, that have fabrics that I can definitely wash, that, you know, no matter how much chocolate is eaten on the couch, regardless of me saying, hey, buddy, use a napkin. Don't eat it on the couch. I'm still able to clean that chocolate off the couch. So you've got to really look at your lifestyle and then decide what's going to sort of get you through the long haul. I've also decided that I'm not allowed to have anything nice until I don't, I don't know. When is it, Tom, when they leave the house? Uh, When can I buy nice things again? (laughs) Well, listen, so let's talk about that, right? So, so my three have left the house, but they come back with dogs. Yeah. (laughs) With dogs. Okay. So that uh, that that totally uh, has an effect on furniture choice. It never really ends. So, guys, just pick what's going to get you through. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like we got to get out of here. I hear our music. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. 